We're in the midst of, and I don't want to sound too philosophic here, but you're in the midst of a fight between democracies and, and, and oligarchs. What's at stake is what are your kids and grandkids going to look like in terms of their, their, their freedom? And the question is, who's going to prevail? The democracy is going to prevail and the, and the values we share? Or autocracy is going to prevail? Good question, Mr. President. Sorry we even have to ask it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. Then there's the ones on the Internet. Uh, coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today oh desi doyan who yes. that was uh, that was joe biden today yes in, that in was Poland? president biden visiting u.s troops uh, at a station on the polish ukrainian border i have a, a noting feel- that by the way the secret yeah. service and folks would not let him travel into ukraine probably a good idea yeah probably not uh i have uh, i have a, a vague idea that those words his words uh, about the uh, fight between democracy and uh, autocracy are going to echo uh, throughout my interview coming up shortly with my guest today momentarily. Uh, but first, well, uh, Lord Manchin has spoken. <laughs> now we just have to hear from Lady Cinema. But so far, so good, I guess. Senator Joe Manchin said on Friday that he intends to vote for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, which, at least in theory, all but ensures the confirmation of the first black female to the U.S. Supreme Court. In a statement, the right-wing, corporatist, corrupt Democratic senator from West Virginia said, quote, after, after meeting with her, considering her record, and closely monitoring her testimony and questioning before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week, I have determined that I intend to vote for her nomination to serve on the Supreme Court. All praise, Lord Manchin. (laughs) 
Some on the right had tried to sway him and fellow party bucker Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona with a uh, debunked line of attack about uh, Judge Jackson's leniency on possessors of child pornography. Which is, of course, not true. Donald Trump Jr. asked on Twitter, quote, Can Joe Manchin explain to West Virginians why he's supporting the pedophile apologist? I don't know, Don Jr. Uh, can you explain after more than 20 women have come forward to say that your dad sexually harassed, assaulted and or raped them? Why anyone would support your criminal father? Unlike Don Jr., uh, by the way, uh, who is obviously a rapist apologist, Judge Jackson isn't actually an apologist for anyone, much less pedophiles like, say, you know, Don Jr.'s dad whose uh, very good uh, pal was the late Jeffrey Epstein. Just saying. Anyway, uh, GOP Senators Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton, they all banged the drum on those silly debunked accusations all week. And, of course, they were rewarded with airtime on Fox News for it, which was really the whole point. But according to TPM's Kate Riga, the Republicans' bombastic hearing performances may have had the opposite effect on Manchin than they intended. In Manchin's statement, he specifically compliments Jackson's temperament as a factor that makes her, quote, an exceptional jurist after she withstood the Republicans' stupid attacks calmly, even when they interrupted uh, her repeatedly as she tried to answer and speak to them. Senator Cinema, however, has not yet spoken publicly about her support for Jackson, so we will hope there are no surprises waiting there. But if there are any surprises, don't be surprised. Nonetheless, with all 50 Democrats in theory on board, Judge Jackson would be on a glide path to confirmation soon. That is, barring any illness or accident incapacitating a Democratic senator between now and the time they can cast their votes. So, yeah, might be wise to hold that vote as quickly as possible, Dems. Just saying. Now, uh, speaking of elderly officials and illnesses, we have been asking out loud for much of the past week, where is Clarence Thomas? The corrupt 73-year-old Supreme Court justice had entered the hospital a week ago, last Friday, even after experiencing what the court did not disclose until Sunday to be flu-like symptoms. He was, again, according to the court, a full two days after he had been quietly admitted, treated for an infection with intravenous antibiotics, uh, when the court said on Sunday in announcing his hospitalization that he was expected to be released from the hospital Monday or Tuesday. Well, Wednesday and Thursday came around without any news of a release of Clarence Thomas, the oldest, uh, the, actually I should say the longest serving justice on the Supreme Court. He will be the oldest serving Supreme Court justice once Justice Stephen Breyer steps down in a few months. But Wednesday and Thursday came. There was no news uh, about his release. There was no statement from the court about the condition of uh, their longest serving justice. A friend of his spoke to the media on Thursday to say that he uh, was resting and doing fine. But that friend would not say where he was resting. 
as uh, Justice Thomas missed a full week of oral arguments at the high court on cases that the court said he intends to vote on anyway, because of course he will. He doesn't care what happened at the oral arguments. He already knows how he's going to vote. Uh, But as of Friday, finally, the court said Justice Thomas was finally discharged. To my knowledge, we still have no word on the supposed supposed infection or what uh, Thomas's condition currently is above and beyond. He is no longer in the hospital. So they found Clarence Thomas. They found Clarence Thomas. I guess they say he's no longer in the hospital. I presume he went home. Who knows? Who knows what he's sick with? <laughs> uh, it's not all that important. His friends said the, it doesn't matter to the public that the, maybe the media want to know, but the public doesn't actually care. So who cares? Of course, that friend was that idiot Armstrong Williams, and, and he is, of course, totally wrong. The public very much does care. As uh, Josh Gerstein at Politico notes, the scant details about Thomas's health status and the belated disclosure of the hospitalization fueled further concerns about limited transparency surrounding the health of justices who serve for life or until they resign from office. There is no law, he notes, or policy requiring justices to notify the public about serious illnesses or injuries. So, yeah, that's true. Uh, What I'm more concerned about is the fact that there are also no laws or policies requiring transparency surrounding conflicts of interest by Supreme Court justices like Clarence Thomas. Nor are there requirements to recuse from cases in which they have very clear conflicts of interest. By the way, that is unlike every other member of the federal judiciary. There are actually rules for, you know, when judges should recuse, what they have to be transparent about and so forth. But those only apply to every other judge uh, in the federal judiciary. For some reason, they don't apply to the Supreme Court. Why? I don't know. I guess um, Supreme Court uh, justices are so regal and royal that we should never question anything about them, that they would never sit on any case on which they had a a conflict of interest. By the way, uh, justices recuse themselves all the time on their own properly from cases in which they have uh, conflicts of interest. For example, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson said that she would recuse herself from any anything having to do. Uh, I think it was with uh, Harvard University and uh, their uh, affirmative action program, which is, I think, a case that will be heard next term uh, when she's sitting on it. So she says, yeah, she will recuse. It's the right thing to do. Of course, Clarence Thomas is not interested in doing the right thing ever. Thomas's discharge from the hospital comes as he faces or at least should face intense attention in the media over reports that his corrupt right-wing activist wife, Jeannie, exchanged at least 20 pretty insane text messages with then-President Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as Trump battled to steal the 2020 presidential election. That news broke just before airtime on our previous broadcast. We had to kick a whole bunch of other stories down the down the road. Uh, maybe we'll get to some of them today. 
But Jenny's uh, the the texts that were given to the U.S. House uh, January 6th Select Committee show that Jenny urged Meadows to do everything possible to try and overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election victory and included details on a host of bizarre and evidence-free conspiracy theories suggesting that Joe Biden's victory was somehow illegitimate because it was caused by uh, Internet hacks by China and Cuba and Venezuela and everyone else, something like that, yes. Ginny, by the way, also said in the messages that she had discussed aspects of all of this with her, quote, best friend, who she did not name, but which uh, some reports have speculated might be her husband, you know, Clarence Thomas, who sits on the Supreme Court, all of that was unbeknownst to the public, even as her husband was voting, thankfully, in the minority in favor of Trump's various ridiculous, stupid challenges to the election results from 2020. And even as Clarence was voting against the subpoenas that resulted in Mark Meadows turning over Clarence Thomas's wife's text messages that were sent to Mark Meadows about the election, those messages, thankfully, were turned over to the January 6th committee, despite Clarence Thomas's efforts to vote against that happening and not telling anyone that his wife had sent messages to Mark Meadows. How dare you question his ability to be impartial about a case that actually involved his own wife. Gosh, that's horrible. In which he never uh, recused himself from any of those cases, despite his activist, far-right activist, radical wife actually working on trying to overturn the election that Clarence Thomas has to vote on one way or another. So, yeah, when I call the Thomases corrupt, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I can only hope that there's going to be much more reporting on on this and, and many demands for not only Clarence Thomas's recusal from any cases that have anything to do with the 2020 election. But frankly, Democrats would be wise to file articles of impeachment against this guy. They would have been wise to have done so years ago. I'm not going to hold my breath now. Since uh, there have been grounds to impeach him for years based on all sorts of similar conflicts of interest, such as when he voted, for example, in favor of the Citizens United case, which allowed millions of dollars, billions of dollars in dark money into our election systems. After that group, Citizens United had, unbeknownst to most, spent millions of dollars on ads and PR back in 1991 to get Clarence Thomas seated on the bench in the first place. And yet, when that same group came before the court, the group that got him on the bench in the first place, did Clarence Thomas recuse himself? Of course not. Did he even acknowledge the fact that Citizens United was one of his biggest supporters uh, to get onto the bench, trying to buy Clarence Thomas's way onto the bench back in 1991. Did he even disclose any of that? Of course not. Not to mention the millions of dollars that then subsequently flowed to Ginny Thomas's so-called nonpartisan nonprofit organizations thanks to Citizens United decision. And not to mention the millions of dollars that she received from right wing organizations personally 
that Clarence, for at least 10 years or so, somehow forgot to mention on his annual mandated financial disclosure forms while he was sitting on the court. Luckily, the Thomases are Republican, or yes, Clarence would have been removed from the bench long ago for that and much more. It is that kind of corruption, corruption of our democracy itself, corruption of our court system, that frankly leads me to our guest today, the co-author of a new report from Freedom House, finding that for the now sadly 16th year in a row, freedom and democracy across the globe are losing out, losing out to rising authoritarianism across the globe. And when it comes to freedom and democracy here in the U.S., as it turns out, according to this year's ranking uh, in, in this new report, we do not even crack the top 50 countries anymore. We're joined next by the co-author of that new disturbing report, Amy Slipowitz of Freedom House. She joins us next to discuss Freedom in the World 2022, the global expansion of authoritarian rule. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the broadcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Yep, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Folks on the right in this country, particularly and and frankly almost entirely only when there is a Democrat in the White House, love to talk about and protest in favor of freedom, claiming that their freedoms are endangered by the policies of whatever Democratic president tends to be in the White House at any given time. In recent months, of course, they've held protests for the freedom to not wear masks in public amid the worst public health crisis in a century to not have to meet largely conservative vaccine or testing mandates. And as usual, the freedom to buy and openly carry any weaponry they feel like at any time, no matter the threat it poses to the freedoms of others to not be killed by those weapons. At the very same time, the very same folks protesting for freedom are also rallying in favor of Banning books from school libraries that don't meet their own personal liking. Banning the teaching of certain subject matters such as sexuality or slavery in schools. Preventing women from determining their own reproductive freedom by actually forcing pregnant women to bear children, even those forced on them by rapists and incestuous family members. And, of course, protesting the right of families and children to determine their own sexual identities with the state of Texas going so far recently as to criminally investigate those parents who do. Freedom, at least in this country, once seen as a beacon of freedom to the world, rightly or wrongly, seems a pretty fuzzy concept at times and often seems to depend on who enjoys political control and who's deciding whose freedoms shall remain free. 
It is not necessarily any better around the world, of course. This week, the Taliban, for example, which has regained control of Afghanistan after Joe Biden ended our 20-year war there, reversed its previous promise to allow girls to attend school by barring them from attending beyond sixth grade. While they, of course, represent an extreme form of oppression, a new report this year from Freedom House titled The Global Expansion of Authoritarian Rule suggests much of the world yet again for what they see as the 16th year in a row is disturbingly moving away from freedom and toward autocracy, including, yes, right here in the U.S., where our so-called beacon of freedom no longer even cracks the top 50 in Freedom House's annual ranking of the most free countries. If my understanding of their data is correct, the U.S. ranks at about 63 in this year's report, tied with nations like South Korea, Romania and Panama, and just behind on their Freedom Index ranking, which takes into account both political rights and civil liberties, nations like Argentina, Mongolia, Croatia and Latvia. We are now far behind Slovenia and the Czech Republic and, according to their report, nowhere near the freedoms available in nations such as Taiwan, Estonia, Chile, much less Australia, Switzerland, Japan, Uruguay, the Netherlands, Canada and New Zealand. Or those nations tied for the most free in the world, Norway, Finland and Sweden. Freedom House is a nonprofit pro-democracy organization which describes itself as the oldest American organization devoted to the support and defense of democracy around the world. They were formally established in 1941. In the early 1970s, they launched an initiative to release annual reports that employed the methods of social science analysis to assess the level of freedom in each country in the world, known as their Freedom in the World Report. The authors of this year's report, Sarah Rapucci and Amy Slipowitz, introduced the 2022 edition like a siren this way, quote, global freedom faces a dire threat. Around the world, the enemies of liberal democracy, a form of self-government in which human rights are recognized and every individual is entitled to equal treatment under the law, are accelerating their attacks. Authoritarian regimes have become more effective at co-opting or circumventing the norms and institutions meant to support basic liberties and at providing aid to others who wish to do the same. In countries with long-established democracies... I wonder who they could be referring to here. Uh, Internal forces have exploited their shortcomings in their systems, distorting national politics to promote hatred, violence and unbridled power. These countries that have struggled in the space between democracy and authoritarianism, meanwhile, are increasingly tilting toward the latter. The global order is nearing a tipping point, they warn, and if democracy's defenders do not work together to help guarantee freedom for all people, the authoritarian model will prevail. The present threat to democracy is the product of 16 consecutive years of decline in global freedom. Yes, that is very disturbing. A total of 60 countries suffered declines over the past year, while only 25 improved. As of today, they note some 38% of the global population live in not-free countries, 
the highest proportion since 1997. Only about 20% now live in free countries. While the U.S. still remains in the free category in their list, we have apparently seen a slippage in recent years for some odd reason. Is it because those demanding freedom from public health mandates, even while demanding freedoms be taken away from others, are right? Or is something else at play here? We spoke last year with the co-author of last year's Freedom House report, Sarah Rapucci, and we're delighted to be joined this year by the other co-author of the group's flagship annual report assessing the condition of political rights and civil liberties around the world, Amy Slipowitz. Amy Slipowitz, welcome to the broadcast. I'm I'm guessing this has been a very, very busy year for you guys, unfortunately. Yes, we're only around three months into it, and we're already, unfortunately, seeing many of the phenomenon that we described in the report that covers mm. events from last year. Yeah. This kind of expansion has continued of authoritarianism. Yeah, that not only that you described, but that you warn about. So I, I don't mean to go all, you know, Marsha Blackburn versus Katanji Brown-Jackson on you here, Amy. Uh, when she asked the uh, first black female to be nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, this past week to define the meaning of the word woman. But since you've got a whole report based on this, and since right-wingers here in the U.S. make a lot of confusing claims these days about their freedoms being taken away, I have to ask, what is freedom? How does uh, Freedom House define that when it comes to this report measuring freedom around the world? Yeah, it's pretty simple. To us, freedom means democracy and there are many different definitions that have been applied to democracy as the term itself has been co-opted. Mm-hmm. But what it is is a governing system that is based on the will and consent of the governed. It has institutions that are accountable to all citizens. These include things like an independent judiciary, um, free media, strong civil society. And ultimately, a democracy is the best system for ensuring that everyone's uh, human rights are respected, no matter who they voted for. Now, as I understand it, Freedom House uh, grades individual countries on uh, 25 different indicators that evaluate the health of a given's, uh, given nation's democracy uh, or lack thereof. Tell me uh, about how the rankings are determined in each of the hundreds of co- countries that you look at. Uh, surely this effort is far larger than you and uh, your co-author, Sarah Rapucci, determining the rankings uh, on your own for for all these countries. Tell me about the process and how these rankings and this report is compiled each year. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I love to talk about the methodology and the process. Mm -hmm. Um, We obviously can't assess all of these countries and territories on our own, so we have external consultants who are often based in the country or are experts on the country. And they cover one country, sometimes more than one. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who are following events that are happening throughout the year in their country on political rights and civil liberties. Um, They propose uh, any score changes, treating the past year as a baseline, so Mm -hmm. looking for on-the-ground changes that have affected people's rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we convene um, a series of meetings where we gather the country experts. We have... um, regional advisors who can offer a comparative perspective, and we talk about each country one by one and what developments have happened during the year and whether their scores um, make sense both from Mm -hmm. a time series perspective but also from a comparative perspective across both 
their own region and around the world. Now, last year's uh, 2021 Freedom House report on freedom in the world, which we discussed around this time last year with your co-author, was titled Freedom in the World 2021 Democracy Under Siege, finding, as I recall, that 2020 had been the worst year for democracy in recent history. This year's report, Freedom in the World 2022, is subtitled The Global Expansion of Authoritarian Rule. First, how much of your report... Uh, published earlier this month, actually takes into account what we are now looking at in in Ukraine uh, following Russia's attack there and so forth. It's very relevant. The main driver that we found for the decline in 2021 was that autocrats are increasingly cooperating and supporting each other in their attacks on democratic norms and institutions. Mm -hmm. And with this, authoritarians have made really enormous gains in the international system. So they've been able to use that influence to promote autocracy as a viable alternative to democracy. Uh, The cooperation isn't based on any unifying ideology Mm -hmm. or even friendship or affinity among authoritarians, but it's rather on a single shared interest, which is to stay in power by any means necessary. And a key part of this is trying to transform the international system where the rules-based international order no longer applies. So that's where you see authoritarian regimes uh, causing conflict and mm-hmm. and other really egregious abuses. And I don't know if you've uh, adjusted uh, the rankings for these countries, but, you know, when Russia claimed, uh, when they... They claimed when they were attacking uh, Ukraine that it was, you know, to, quote, liberate the nation from Nazis and end a years-long genocide by its democratically elected leaders in Ukraine. Your rankings, however, on the Global Freedom Index tell a very different story between the two nations. Uh, Russia scores 19 in the not-free category, and Ukraine scores far higher with 61 ranked as partly free. By way of comparison, the most free countries, Norway, Finland, and Sweden, they score 100 on the Global Freedom Index. U.S. has a score of 83. Were the numbers for Russia and Ukraine actually adjusted after the launch of, of, the, uh, of the war? And if not, how, how would or should they be changed since uh, Putin's February 24 invasion? Yeah, we would assess what happens throughout 2022, and that would be the end scores mm-hmm. um, for next year's edition. So... When we gather again to talk about the developments in both Ukraine and Russia, we will obviously focus a lot of the discussion on what has happened, what is happening now and how it's really devastated people's political rights and civil liberties. So so if we see Russia with a score of 19, and that was before they passed this new law that, you know, essentially ended all independent reporting from within the nation, I, I presume that would be something that would affect their score. It would probably be, probably be lower than 19 in next year's uh, index. I don't like to speculate on the future and make predictions, uh-huh. and I, I'd have to look at the individual indicator levels uh-huh. because it might already be a zero, which is the, the worst score you can get. Wow. Um, but we would definitely talk about these things and see where it makes sense for Russia comparatively and, and how it's really deteriorated over the last couple of years. 
And uh, separate then from Russia's attack on Ukraine, if, if that's even possible, uh, what are the most noteworthy findings that have changed from the 2021 report, which was not good, which was you know very troubling as is, titled Democracy Under Siege, to the 2022 report, the Global Expansion of Authoritarian Rule? What, what do you find most noteworthy that has changed over that uh, since last year's report? Yeah, so I mentioned the cooperation that authoritarians are doing with each other, mm-hmm. and that has really led to real-world effects for real people and individuals. So we've seen this manifest with things like more military coups, more elections with predetermined outcomes, and power grabs. So just to give a couple of examples, um, military coups happened in five countries this year. This was more common in 2021 than in any year of the past decade. Mm. Um, We saw yet another military coup happen early this year in Burkina Faso. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are also no contest elections in countries from Russia to Nicaragua, where authoritarian leaders are dropping even the pretense of a competitive vote. Uh, They've jailed the opposition outright. They've congratulated each other on their undemocratic wins. And what all of this shows is that political leaders and other leaders are facing fewer deterrents to anti-democratic behavior. So we should prepare ourselves for more destabilizing events like what we're seeing today. Fantastic. Um, Amy Slipwitz, you've got some uh, some great charts and graphs in this report. And uh, one early one that actually caught my eye, it's something we talked about last year with your co-author, uh, but it, it's just it's so striking regarding the the share of the world's population living in free environments. It shows a sort of a slow decline of those living in free environments going back 16 years. And then it just plummets. It just falls over a cliff in 2020 as the number of those in partly free countries then spikes uh, in, in sort of in response to that. Both of those measures have slightly improved, it seems, according to that chart over the past year. But what do you attribute that uh, that plummet to in 2020 that is just so striking, like nothing we've we've seen over the past 16 years? The big contributor was that India dropped in its status from free to partly free in mm. 2020. Uh, as you know, it has one of the world's largest populations, mm-hmm. so that really, really made the percentage of people living in free countries plummet. Mm-hmm. And the reason that India dropped to partly free was because of a multi-year pattern where uh, Prime Minister Modi and his government have presided over rising violence and discriminatory policies that affect the Muslim population. They've pursued a crackdown on expressions of dissent by the media, academics, civil society groups, and protesters. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really a kind of great example of how many democracies have been backsliding over the last few years. I mentioned uh, during my introduction that one of the uh, things that has brought that have brought uh, Republicans uh, to the streets in recent months uh, is protests over uh, mask mandates, uh, vaccine or test mandates and so forth. Did do those uh, sorts of uh, public health restrictions, public health mandates around the world, do they somehow feed in? Is that seen as a lack of freedom uh, in whether it was 2020 or 2021? 
We really look at whether the response to the pandemic is disproportionate or arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So we, if countries or governments are implementing public health mandates like masks and uh, other, other things that are meant to protect people's health, mm-hmm. that's within the lines of international human rights principles. Where we're more concerned is when governments enact really arbitrary and harsh restrictions and kind of use those as a cover to crack down on dissent. Mm. So in Myanmar, for example, there was a military coup last year, and the de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, was faced many charges, including ones of breaking COVID restrictions, mm. and that was used to convict her. So you can clearly see how there can be it can be a tool that's used mm-hmm. to for nefarious purposes. And so we're less focused on things like mask mandates and, and things like that than we are at really egregious abuses of power. Um, also things like corruption and how COVID funds are have been embezzled for mm. other purposes. So those are more of our concerns. And, and so just to be clear, uh, lack of uh, freedoms in, be, due to COVID uh, responses in this country, did that uh, have, did any of that have any effect on uh, the, the particular U.S. ranking this year? It did not. We felt that it was in line with international mm-hmm. human rights principles during a public emergency or a health crisis. Fair enough. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this program and at bradblog.com uh, over the past nearly 20 years now, reporting on U.S. democracy and elections, uh, finding them uh, to say uh, wild, wildly uh, flawed and arguably in recent years getting much worse from the obscene amount of corporate dark money spent on elections uh, and even on essentially buying federal judgeships and, yes, Supreme Court seats, not to mention voter suppression uh, through gerrymandering and restrictions at the ballot box, which are apparently taking a huge leap uh, this past year, thanks to Trump's big lie about a stolen 2020 election and an increasingly troubling series of decisions by, yes, those what I regard as sort of bought and paid for Supreme Court justices. How much does U.S. democracy and um the freedom to vote weigh on your scale for uh, the United States, which, as I said earlier, no longer even cracks the top 50 when it comes to free, uh, free nations. Election integrity is a very big concern for us. Uh, we're seeing it happen around the world and also, of course, in the United States. So it's really the right to vote is a fundamental underpinning of democracy. So when we're seeing state governments attempt to disenfranchise voters under the guise of election security, that's deeply troubling. Uh, and how much does the January 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, how much does that play into our ranking this year? We held it off, but what is the effect on uh, on such a coup attempt on democracies, both here in the U.S., and, but really in the world? What, what do such attempted takeovers tend to signal can we learn anything what they tend to signal in other countries that uh, you know that we may uh, want to be warned about here yeah january 6th is a sign of more structural issues that the united states faces one of course is the polarized and fractured political environment mm-hmm. and also that very influential people are continuing to perpetuate a lie that 
Biden stole the 2020 election, whether for personal gain or because they genuinely believe it. Mm-hmm. And on the um, at the same time, there's an increasing politicization of what should be nonpartisan election posts, mostly at the state level. The trend has been around for a while, but it's definitely getting worse. And I think if the U.S. isn't protecting and improving its own democracy, uh-huh. it's going to be really difficult to preserve and strengthen democracy on a global scale. So like it or not, governments and activists around the world watch what the U.S. is doing very closely. And at the same time, authoritarians and aspiring dictators do take abuses of power in the U.S. as license to do the same or worse in their own countries. So you only have to look at the statements some of these leaders made last year to show how this is really going to have an impact on the global stage. Yeah, that, which is interesting to me because, you know, as I said uh, earlier, the you know the U.S. has long regarded itself as, you know, a beacon of freedom. I know that others do see us that way, whether we are or are not. We're seen that way. Um, some, albeit, you know, generally on Fox News, regard the U.S. as the greatest democracy on God's green earth. Obviously, at least based on Freedom House's report here, those things are not necessarily true. But you suggest that what, imperfect as we are, the world still looks to the U.S. and our democracies for for clues one way or another uh, as far as which direction they may be moving towards democracy or towards autocracy? I do. I think that major democracies like the U.S. have a really key role to play mm-hmm. when there are transitioning or developing countries that could go one way or the other towards democracy or autocracy. Mm-hmm. And the appeal of democracy really loses its credibility if you're seeing things like January 6th happen in a country like the U.S. There's this problem where democracies haven't really been delivering to their populations and showing why a democratic system is the most beneficial system. Mm. And that component really needs to be worked on and really prove that democracy is the best alt- the best system we have. Now, I, you know, our score this year is uh, 83. I believe we had the same rating in last year's report, which is actually kind of uh, surprising to me, given that we had, you know, we did have the uh, the insurrection January 6th. We've had, we've seen this spate of laws all around the, uh, the country in Republican-controlled states, making it harder to vote and so forth, and some really adverse decisions when it comes to democracy by our U.S. Supreme Court. So... And nonetheless, we're still 83 uh, on, on your ranking this year. Should should we view that as a good sign in that we have at least stopped some bleeding from previous years? Or, or is that alarming in that we have not been able to restore much of what was lost during the Trump era here? I think it's much e- easier to dismantle democratic institutions than it is to build them back up. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the U.S. score did not change overall, um, says that there are really deep, serious systemic issues that still need to be improved upon. So this past year, there were gains in free assembly and governmental transparency, Mm. but those were offset by losses that Mm. stemmed from the rise in political violence and threats and also a decline in academic freedom. Um, So for the U.S. to recover from this 10-point or sorry, 11-point decline over 
10 years, it's really important that the more structural issues be strengthened and fixed. I I don't know, um, Amy Slipwitz, if you can answer this question or not, uh, since I suspect you have not personally been authoring uh, Freedom House's reports using this methodology going all the way back to 1973. But uh, are you able to tell, has there been a moment in modern history uh, since the 70s where we saw similar trends to those that we have been seeing across the globe in uh, in recent years, in the past 16 years that you focus on here? Or do we have to sort of go all the way back to earlier parts of the 20th century to uh, to find anything similar? That's a great question, and I don't have the data in front of me, so Mm -hmm. I can't say with certainty, but I think the just really protracted nature of the decline is something new. Um, There hasn't been any relief in 16 years, and that's a pretty significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. I think before the decline had started, there there was thinking that there was this new wave of democratization, this new international system where everyone would become a democracy, but that clearly has proven false, and it's really showing itself in how it's impacting just ordinary people's rights, because ultimately freedom in the world is measuring how individuals are able to have or not have political rights and civil liberties. Finally, and uh, no, I'm, I'm still not going to ask you to define what a woman is, Amy, don't worry. But uh, if there's one thing that we should take away from this year's 2022 Freedom in the World report, probably a warning, I guess, uh, what, what would you like it to be? Just thinking about that, um, mm-hmm. I think... There's not really, we're not seeing a reversal of this democratic decline. This year, this past year, only 25 countries improved, and that was the lowest number of improvements during those 16 years. Mm. So we see this as a sign that the decline is actually deepening. And I think now is a really pivotal moment for supporters of democracy to be able to come together and address all of the different issues that we lay out in the report and that other great organizations and activists are are highlighting because otherwise we are going to be living in a world that is more like what we're seeing now with conflict and insecurity and basic rights being completely violated. Well, uh, thank you for your work and Freedom House's work in support of democracy, Amy Slipwitz. Amy is the research manager for Freedom in the World and the author of uh, the co-author of Freedom House's flagship annual report assessing the condition of political rights and civil liberties around the world. That's the Freedom in the World report. We will, of course, link to it when we uh, post today's show at bradblog.com. You can uh, find it yourself, however, by stopping by freedomhouse.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at Freedom House, and you can follow Amy in particular on the Twitters. She is Amy underscore Slip. Amy Slipowitz, uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Hope to talk to you again next year with maybe some better news. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. You bet. 
Okay, I'm 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 not counting on it though. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, yeah. Sadly, the uh, the trend is not in the good direction. No, it is not. Now that said, things had been trending so poorly in recent weeks that uh, on our previous broadcast, I, I I was actually there was a lot of good news that I was able to uh, cover. Yeah, finding several silver linings uh, to report on since I just I could personally I you know I. We worry about our listeners taking all of this terrible news, but frankly, it was me. I just couldn't stand to deliver <laughs> it. So we had some good news, uh, and I had more good news that I was hoping to cover. And then uh, the corrupt Ginny and Clarence Thomas stories came in that I had to kick those stories down the road. Let's catch up with some of them. Yes, some silver linings, some maybe good-ish news. Straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only one that keeps us here. Thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Taking the good with the bad. Doing our best. Trying to find it where we can. Uh, so, yes, I had to uh, push this story off from our, our previous broadcast to make r- room for the news about the corrupt Ginny Thomas, the wife of, you know, the corrupt Justice Clarence Thomas, sending dozens of text messages to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, encouraging him to steal the 2020 election for Trump, even as Clarence was voting in favor of those efforts to steal the election and voting to prevent Mark Meadows's text messages from being shared with the House Select January 6th Committee. Not corrupt at all. Yes, but after this past week, uh, and hell, after an interview like the one we just had, uh, we could use some slightly brighter news to end today with, and I underscore slightly, but, you know, we take what we can get. As I was arguing yesterday, if, if you look hard enough, there are some silver linings out there, even amidst these very dark days. Thanks to both the war in Europe and corporate profiteering by f- big fossil fuels, uh, gasoline prices may be setting records across the U.S. as oil has been topping $100 a barrel. But along with that, consumer interest in electric vehicles and other clean energy technologies is speeding up. The Wall Street Journal is reporting. That's good. Ain't it? Yes, especially since car companies are about to introduce a whole bunch of new ones. Yep. Uh, gas prices are about uh, $1.35 higher than they were a year ago, according to AAA. But that has more consumers looking for an alternative to the gas chuggers that make up most U.S. sales. In the week that ended March 13, one quarter of shoppers on Edmunds.com considered a hybrid plug-in hybrid or electric vehicle. Now, it's just one quarter, but that's actually a 39% increase 
from the previous week. Yes, the increase in gas prices has actually brought electric cars into parity with regular gasoline cars just on the purchase price. But of course, when you consider the fact that the fuel, you know, is way cheaper on an electric car forever, it's so much <laughs> cheaper to run and to own an electric car. Well, so a, 30, a 39% increase uh, in interest in those types of uh, vehicles over just the previous week, an 84% surge from the same week in February. Mm. More than two-thirds of Americans surveyed by consumer tracker PeopleSay said in a report last week that they are nervous about rising fuel prices, and nearly half of those surveyed said EVs could provide a viable alternative to internal combustion engine cars. So, yeah, you know, like I say, uh, good with the bad. Uh, EVs have been gaining momentum as more major car makers offer them at increasingly lower prices, reflecting a steep decrease in the price of batteries, which account for about 30 to 40 percent of the vehicle's cost. Did you know that 30 to 40 percent is the cost for uh, you know, is all I, in batteries? I did not. I don't think I realized that it was that big of a component. But, you either. know, of course, with battery prices coming down mm-hmm. like gangbusters, that that's kind of good news. So, yeah, uh, I guess it is. Uh, in 2021, worldwide EV sales did more than double to six point six million. Uh, in related news, Biden, uh, the Biden administration is uh, said to be drafting an order to invoke def- the Defense Production Act for green energy storage technology. That's batteries, essentially. Yep. Uh, and as part of this, uh, several senators sent President Joe Biden a letter on Wednesday asking him to use authorities such as those contained in the Defense Production Act to, quote, support and increase manufacturing capacity and supply chain security for technologies that reduce fossil fuel demand and fuel costs such as electric heat pumps. Yay! Now, we discussed electric heat pumps uh, with the climate journalist and activist Bill McKibben. Was it last week? I yeah. think it was last week. Feels like forever ago, but uh, yes, last yeah, week. I know. And he said that that could serve uh, to replace some 75 million oil and gas furnaces in Europe that currently rely on fossil fuels right now. So, you know, I was going to say this could really be happening. We will see. We'll see if uh, right now it's uh, just uh, several senators trying to uh, push the Biden administration to do this, though, when McKibben was on the show, I think he said that there were people that he had heard from within the administration. Correct. And there does appear to be much more conversation about this within the in- administration. CNN quoted climate envoy John Kerry saying that they are looking at it and trying to figure out nice. how to make that work. But he was focused more on having Europe make their own heat pumps rather than the mind-boggling good idea of having Americans make it and building a supply chain here in the U.S. and jobs here. Uh, but, you know, we'll give them time to come up with that idea. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we got to build 75 million of them so there's probably plenty for everyone (laughs) to get into yeah mckibben pointed out that we could also send over people americans to help install them like crazy and get trained and and get trained and get these in before uh next winter this would make a huge difference in the uh the russian war machine that makes a lot of money about 40 percent of their um, uh, economy yeah. Yeah, is yeah, based yeah. on 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 uh, selling gas to Europe, so this could make a huge difference there in the Russian war machine, and of course in the climate. And in a related story here, 
back in the U.S. Uh, this will have to suffice for a related-ish silver lining. Despite previously saying that it would only order 5,000 electric models of its next-generation postal truck on Thursday, the U.S. Postal Service announced that it is doubling that figure to just over 10,000. Produced by Oshkosh Defense, yes, Donald Trump's Postmaster General Louis DeJoy contracted with a defense contractor in Wisconsin to build the new trucks to replace the huge postal fleet of trucks that were built uh, back in the 1980s. They get about eight miles per gallon, the old ones, and these new gas ones will as well. These uh, next-generation vehicles are slated to become the new workhorse of the USPS, with the first batch of trucks scheduled to hit the road sometime in 2023. And as part of the uh, post office's effort to upgrade its aging fleet, the service planned an, an initial order of 50,000 vehicles that would be a mix of gas and electric-powered trucks instead of, you know, all electric-powered trucks. However, after learning that only 10% of those trucks would be EVs, the both the EPA and the Biden administration uh, requested that the U.S. Postal Service reconsider the distribution of that order, and apparently it did, but not by much. Uh, at least amid our uh, climate crisis in which gas-powered vehicles are killing us and civilization <laughs> itself. Well, and also will cost the U.S. Postal Service way more because of the higher gas prices. Eventually, so it was kind of a stupid now, choice. Well, they're claiming that uh, that the 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 battery the uh, electric battery trucks right now will cost them more in the front end. True, they're not considering the fuel costs in the back end and over I don't the know, life of the trucks. Right, and and who knows how high the oil uh, prices are going to go. Uh, the USPS had increased the number of uh, new electric. Postal trucks ha has increased the number of the uh, new electric trucks on the order to just over 10,000 battery electric vehicles. That is a significant improvement. I mean, they have doubled what they were planning originally. Still, it is a minority compared to gas-powered models. It's only about one-fifth. Better than nothing. I guess so, which ought to be the tagline for the broadcast. <laughs> Our news is better than nothing. I think. Anyway, uh, let's end today on that slightly optimistic note. Got to get out. My thanks to my guest, uh, Amy Slipowitz from Freedom House. Of course, to my producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other or just want to share it with someone who you either love or hate, <laughs> you can do so for free by downloading it at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by your kind support at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you in advance. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>